Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, June 23rd, 2010. weird programs. Well, then again, maybe all of my programs are weird. Okay, looking. Alright. Consulting my notes here. Yep, yes, 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 maybe. Okay, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. And I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Apparently, um, people are out there trying to transform uh, Christianity and transform <clears throat> Uh, the church, and that's a bizarre way to talk about uh, the church and Christianity. Um, you know, you only transform things that are fundamentally flawed or broken. And so um, y- you preserve things that are precious and valuable. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, um, if you were to go out and, um, you know, Let's say that you're an investment realtor type of thing, and and you like buying up properties and and transforming those properties into new, brand new megaplex houses, you know, kind of thing. Uh, you know, so you 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 buy up old homes and then you tear them, you raise them to the ground, and then you uh, build something new on top of it. You fundamentally have transformed that house. Uh, it, that's the idea. There is is that. The in your way of thinking, those older homes or those properties just don't cut the mustard. They they don't rise to the level that uh, <clears throat> well that are worth preserving, if you would. And so you want to transform those things. Transformation assumes that there's something fundamentally flawed with something, and therefore it must be fixed or transformed or turned into something else. And so when you have people running around the landscape, pastors, uh, missional gurus, uh, talking about transforming the church, uh, well, the tacit, unspoken uh, premise is that the church is broken. That's the idea. I mean, otherwise, you would want to preserve the church. Hold fast, stand firm, 
Uh, that that would be the idea. I mean, but we, that's not the language we're hearing. So when you hear language of transformation, when you hear um, a language of rethinking, reevaluating, reassessing, all of those words have uh, as part of their baggage uh, this concept: the thing being transformed, or the person. Uh, talking about transforming something assumes that the thing is broken, that it needs to be fixed, that something ain't working right, that it's not up to snuff, that it's just not cutting the gravy, the mustard, making the grade. You know what I'm talking about here. So that's the thing. When you hear these people talking about transforming the church, what they're basically saying is that they hate what the church has been, and they think it's broken and it needs to change or transform or die no no the church doesn't need to transform or die the church was not built by us yeah listen i've received emails from people who as a result of what i've stated here on this program uh you know preaching the gospel proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins i've received several emails over the past couple of years uh, from people who have basically said that uh, they've repented and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And I'm going to be the first person to say this. I haven't added a single person to the uh, kingdom of God. And you're sitting there going, wait a second, you just described people that you know came into the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I am completely powerless when it comes to adding people to the kingdom of God. That's God's job. I've been called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So have you, by the way. Um, if you're a Christian, that's this is kind of a task that the church has been given, all of us, uh, by God, uh, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. God's the one, though. Uh, how did Paul put it? He said, one plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Let me repeat that again. One plants, the other waters, but it's God who gives the increase. I am... Uh, I personally am completely powerless to uh, to drag somebody into the kingdom of God or entice them into coming into the kingdom of God. Uh, the, 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 about as far as I can go is to convince somebody that the story's true, that the history and the facts laid out by the Christian faith in the New Testament, as well as the old, that these are historically accurate and true and that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But just because you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be doesn't mean that you're a Christian. And so I have no power to bring anybody into the kingdom of God. God is the one who builds his kingdom, and he does it through the means and the methods that he has established. So, I I mean, I can't go out and be, you know, by the way, no one would, if I said, listen, I am a great uh, apologetics and uh, Chris, uh, defender and evangelist uh, guru. I know I'm an evangelist, um, missional evangel. Yeah, I need to come up with my own language, like uh, Ed Stetzer and those guys. Yeah, we need to be intentionally missional while on an incarnational missional mission. And uh, when we do that, you know, when we're intentional about our incarnationalism. Then, you know, the mission, uh, then the dream for the mission and the intention that God intended and envisioned for the, uh, for the mission will, yeah. those guys aren't saying anything. I've said it before. I'll say it again. What the, all of that missional, incarnational, intentional talk, it's a waste of time. 
I, I the Bible talks about proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, calling sinners to repentance, proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that his death on the cross propitiated God's wrath, atoned for our sins, redeemed us from sin, death, and the devil, and that uh, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that God is pardoning sinners. I mean, I, I understand that because all of that is biblical talk. But when you got these guys talking about being intentionally missional and incarnational and, and you know, I mean, it makes me want to be an, intentionally veg, an inve- intentional vegetable. I mean, this is ridiculous. It doesn't mean anything. So all those gurus and all those people out there who are claiming that they've got the secret formula, uh, just the right way of, uh, uh, you know, the the, the right product that you can apply to your church so that you can grow the kingdom of God. They're selling you something. If you want to know how God grows his kingdom, read the book, read the New Testament. It's, It's not like Jesus was, you know, hiding this information somewhere and that, you know, and that it takes some guru to, you know, to dig out these these truths that have never been discovered before. Jesus made it perfectly clear. In fact, he even trained the disciples how to do it. You know what he did? He trained the disciples, told them to go into towns, you know, kind of two by two and proclaim repentance and the good news, you know, and the gospel. And um, if people received them, you know, stay. If they rejected them, didn't want to hear the message, shake the dust off their feet and move on down the road. Got to ease on down, ease on down the road. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, plain and simple. And then uh, then Luke 24, Jesus says, what does he say? Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. And you know what the disciples did? Yeah, they became the apostles in 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 the in the, uh, in the book of Acts. They just well, they did what Jesus told them to do: proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And wouldn't you know it, God, God, literally raised dead sinners from the dead, regenerated them, brought them to repentance and faith and trust in Him, all through the silly, silly. Uh, un, unwise uh, method of just proclaiming the good news. God's the one who built his kingdom that way. And you know what? We haven't got a new memo. We haven't got an addendum from God basically saying, you know, hey, listen, yeah, I understand that I built my church, you know, by, you know, back in the first century by telling the disciples to, you know, go out and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. But, you know, listen, this is the 21st century. We need some new and improved missional incarnational methods for building the kingdom of God. And so you need to be intentionally attractional while uh, on a mission. It's ridiculous. Just chuck the whole thing. The emperor has no clothes on there. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Pastors, your job is to preach the word. Yeah, you've heard of it, preach the word. Yeah, that's your job. Your job is to feed God's sheep, preach the word, and don't second-guess the great shepherd. Yeah, the good shepherd is the one who told you to feed his sheep. So you don't sit there and go, well, that doesn't make any sense, man. You know, because the butt, I think that the sheep need to become self-feeders. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, last time I checked, you weren't given the authority to second-guess the good shepherd. The good shepherd told you to feed his sheep, so stop complaining about it and stop talking about all this self-feeding stuff and get to work. 
And if you have a problem with that, get out of the ministry because you're not supposed to sit there and browbeat the sheep and beat them into becoming self-feeders. Your job is to feed the sheep, period. You don't like it? Find a different career. Anyway, that's all prologue today. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, as I was looking at my notes earlier at the beginning of the program, got some strange stuff here. Um, uh, We're going to be hearing from Joshua Mills. Joshua Mills has started putting out new videos lately, and apparently he's got a, a new video that he just put up a day ago talking about the purpose of angelic encounters. And, uh, you know, by the way, you know how you can tell if an angel is in your house? Well, there would be feathers just flying all over the place. You know, if you're you're sitting there eating your dinner and all of a sudden this feather falls and floats from the ceiling down onto your table while you're eating dinner, well, that means an angel's there. And uh, and then we got a guy by the name of Todd White who hangs out with the extreme prophetic crowd. And, uh, I mean, talk about, listen, listen, I mean, this is practical stuff here. We're being cutting edge and relevant here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, have you guys ever wondered what God's weight loss formula is? Well, yeah, uh, apparently God has one. And, uh, well, luckily for you, at no extra charge, we're actually going to reveal, uh, via Todd White from Extreme Prophetic, what God's secret weight loss formula is. And uh, it's, I mean, up until now, we this has not yet been revealed to humanity. But thanks to Todd White over at Extreme Prophetic and Neck Ministries, uh, we now uh, are able to reveal to you God's weight loss formula. So if you're struggling with uh, your weight, like I do, I can't, you know, and you know, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, and and you know, and you know, and, and if you're struggling with your weight, then well, good news, we've got uh, God's <clears throat> weight loss formula for you today. I mean, yeah, and then uh, and then uh, after the break, we've got. Uh, uh, an op-ed piece, the latest op-ed piece from Al Mohler called The End of Men. Yeah, it's talking about masculinity and and matriarchies and things like that. It's an interesting piece. And uh, and then I got an op-ed piece that I want to read to you from the uh, Associated Baptist Press. It's entitled, When Churches Jump the Shark. When Churches Jump the Shark. Now, if you don't know what jumping the shark is, uh, jumping the shark is basically a term used in television and um it refers back to uh the um the uh happy days uh program and uh you know happy days like back in the days when there was only like 13 channels on your television and you remember i remember that i remember the day when you had to actually get up to turn the channel and you twisted the knob and you know you you had channel 2 through 13 where basically you know those were your options but not even not every one of those channels had a channel on it and when i grew up in southern california so we had like 2 channel 2 channel 4 channel 5 channel uh, 6 i think was kcet at the time that was a public uh, television 7 was abc and then you flipped over to 9, and then 11, and then 13. There was no 12. There was no 8. So back in the day when there wasn't a big variety of uh, of uh, stations to choose from, Happy Days was on the air. And uh, one of the ways the writers thought they could, like, you know, renew flagging, uh, you know, their flagging audience was to uh, have the Fonz uh, jump a shark while on uh, water skis. And it was just wretched. It was just awful television. And 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 people kind of say that that was that was the episode that spelled doom. The you know the the beginning of the end for the uh, for that long running show Happy Days. 
And so now nowadays when they talk about, uh, you know, one of the things they do is when a, when a television show has kind of hit its peak and is starting in, uh, on, on its wane, they say, well, the, the television show has jumped the shark. Well, we've got an op-ed piece from the Associated Baptist Press talking about churches in that way. I mean, uh, when... <clears throat> Excuse me for just a second. I'm going to divulge a little bit of my thoughts on this. But we, the Christian church, the body of Christ, have been given a timeless message that is relevant to all peoples in all cultures in all times until Christ returns. It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God was incarnate in Jesus Christ, uh, the God of the Jews, in fact, and that he fulfilled the Mosaic law perfectly and he died on the cross as our substitute. He took the penalty for our sins, and we are, and, and as a result of it, we are offered a full and complete pardon in Christ by, by because of what He has done. And that men everywhere, regardless of the nation that they are in or the culture they grew up in, are called to repent of their sinfulness and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Plain and simple. I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that, and it applies to everybody everywhere. But now we've got this op-ed piece uh, from the Associated Baptist Press talking about when churches jump the shark. Well, if churches were doing their job rather than chasing after the latest cultural fad or, uh, you know, basically turning their church, their, their big theater uh, auditoriums into a big stage rock and roll self-help shows... Uh, they wouldn't have to worry about jumping the shark, now would they? So we're going to be reading that at the uh, end of the, this first hour. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And um, and I normally use this uh, audio for Patricia King, but, well, oh, I forgot, to tell, I forgot to tell you about our sermon review today. Sermon review in the second hour, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I have an MBA from Pepperdine, and I, listen, I, as I was perusing my uh, ever expanding list of churches that I uh, that I keep an eye out for as far as uh, sermon reviews, for I found a church in uh, Tempe, Arizona called Christ Life Church, and uh, they they just finished a sermon rev- a sermon series on the business book, Good to Great. Yeah, it, I, if you, those of you who uh, I think it's Jim Collins is the author. He's also the author of of um built to last. I mean these are these are business classics, business staples, uh, interesting ideas for the business world, but apparently now it's sermon fodder. So we're going to be doing a sermon review a second hour on uh good to great. So with that I normally use this uh, for Patricia King, but I think I'll have to just use it for the extreme prophetic folks. <sighs> Joshua Mills. It's been a while since we've heard from him. Mr. Gold Dust and Sapphire Dust. Yeah, Joshua, he's got a brand new uh brand new video out at Extreme Prophetic called The Purpose of Angelic Encounters. And uh so with that, um just that's enough lead in. Let's listen in to Joshua Mills from Extreme Prophetic. Recently we've been experiencing a lot of angelic encounter in our lives, in our ministry, in our home. Uh you know, he can just spin a great yarn, can't he? A few months ago, actually, our senior pastors from our home church in London, Ontario, Canada, Pastor Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Well, this is good because one of the stories that we covered here, Joshua Mills talked about, you know, a girl in the Arctic. 
They came to visit us in Palm Springs, California, and they were with us for a week. And the one night we were sitting in the kitchen just around the table, and we were talking about some of the wonderful moves of God, things we've seen uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, things that God had been doing. And it was amazing because the more that we would talk about the glory, the more that we would talk about the things of the Spirit, it's like we could feel that the weightiness of the cloud of glory. We could feel there it is again. That's the second time recently I've heard about this weighty cloud of glory. You know, somebody asked the question: Was it uh, Susa? The gal's the last name was Susa uh, on the um, It's Supernatural uh, program. We played some of the audio from that. Uh, somebody asked the question, well, if Jesus depended upon the glory cloud in order to do his miracles and do the things that he did, then really who's God, Jesus or the glory cloud? And I thought it was a great question. Well, here we go again. Bizarre stuff going on here. Feeling the weight of the glory cloud. Yeah. Feel the things of God beginning to be imparted to us. And something that began happening is we actually began feeling even that angelic encounter uh, moving into that atmosphere. And uh, right as we got up, we were, we were going to leave and go to bed for the night, and they were going to go out to go to bed. And uh, when we got up to leave the table, all of a sudden, there were feathers that began to fall, and just a tiny little feather fell. Janet caught it uh, in her hand, and we realized that God was releasing this manifestation of the things that we've been sensing in the spirit, the things that God was doing. Either that or your pillow shed a feather and it got caught up in your air duct and, you know, just got spit out. You know, you need to check the filter on your furnace. And the pastors, they, they went out to, to go to bed. And Janet and I, we stayed inside the house around the kitchen for about 20 minutes. We were just looking up. And every once in a while, we just see a feather come from here, a feather come from there. They just begin to float down, and we begin to catch them. And thank God. That so basically, angels are big chickens. He has given his angels charge over us, that he has assigned this angelic realm as messengers, servants, to, to bring his purposes to the earth in our lives. And we just begin to thank God for that. Yeah, that would really be embarrassing. Um, folks, if you're experiencing angelic molting occurring in your home, uh, you might want to call like a service. You know, In fact, I, maybe here at Pirate Christian Radio, I need to set up some kind of special service uh, whereby we can send out our professional team of cleaners to your home if you happen to have angels that are molting uh, anywhere in the vicinity. I mean, First of all, check to see if the glory cloud is hanging out in your neighborhood. That would be a sign that there could be angels that may be molting in your home. So if you see the glory cloud in your neighborhood, um, yeah, it, it, you might just send me an email. You know, and, and we we have uh, a team of professional quality uh, molt cleaner cleaner upper specialists ready at, at a moment's notice to come into your home to you know to clean up. Any feathers that, uh, that that may be falling in your home as a result of angelic molting going on. Uh, a few weeks later, I was spending the night just studying some of the things of God and just really giving myself to the Word and, and to devotion. And I was sitting in my chair in the corner of our bedroom, and Janet had gone to Janet Angela had gone to to bed, and uh, I was sitting there in the chair. And all of a sudden, I looked up. It was somewhere around I think about four o'clock in the morning. And when I looked up, I could see these angels coming out of... Yeah, right. You notice how he um, <clears throat> basically tells stories about his own life rather than actually teaching the Bible? 
I mean, I mean, it makes you just want to sit here and go, hmm. Wow, I, I just had no idea that Joshua Mills was so special that basically he gets to exegete his life and tell all of these, spin all of these yarns, if you know what I mean. And uh, and you know we're supposed to look to him and go, oh, I just want to be just like Joshua Mills. I want angels molting in my kitchen too. Our ensuite bathroom coming into the bedroom, and uh, the way that I saw the angels appear, it was like I could see the outline of of their heads and the outline of their shoulders but I couldn't see any faces. And I'd never seen the angelic like this before, but I just saw them coming into the bedroom. and Yeah, I bet you've never really seen the angelic. And just coming up beside the bed, and I was thanking God for whatever he was releasing. I wasn't sure exactly what he was doing. and uh, But that happened at times when I was listening to the word and just giving myself to the... Again, I uh, just want to point this out. It, when you read the Bible, you know, in the New Testament, and there's people who witness or come in contact with angels um we that we have instances of people like literally falling over dead uh being so terrified uh that they can hardly speak and here joshua mills yeah so there we were you know we were in our kitchen and i looked over and coming right out of the bathroom was you know these angels without faces and i just thought wow that's weird that's kind of just strange i mean yet when you read in the bible you know uh, the first words out of angels' mouths are, fear not. Why would they have to say that? Because, well, <clears throat> human beings coming in contact with God's holy angels um, generally have a tendency to be so frightened and terrified by the experience that uh, they are left speechless or pretty much wetting themselves. I mean, you know, <clears throat> not Joshua Bill, so I mean... <laughs> Yeah, angels molting and, you know, coming out of his bathroom. That's all just, you know, old hat. The things of God. The next night, I was in our media room. And I was sitting there, and I decided to put on some old DVDs that I had from uh, some of our friends, Charles and Francis Hunter. I was watching some of the older DVDs that they had recorded in the 80s. And as I was watching Francis Hunter speak about God's purposes for healing, and, and she was declaring God's word, all of a sudden, I looked over to the doorway in the media room, and I saw these angels, these same angels I'd seen the night before. They were coming in to the media room, but they were coming in, and then they were going out. They are coming in and going out. And I asked God, I said, God, what is it that you're saying? Two nights in a row, I've seen these angels, and I, I've become aware of the angelic presence that's here. What is it that you're doing? When I asked God that, He dropped it in my spirit so strong that what was happening was Really, Psalm 103, verse 20, it says that angels hearken to the voice of God's word. That when God's word is declared or God's word is decreed and released, there's angels that are activated on behalf of that word to carry forth the purposes of God in the earth. Uh, wait, 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 wait. <clears throat> the, uh, the angels hearken to God's word. You were watching DVDs of your friends from something they did in the 1980s? And angels were hearkening to that. What are you talking about? Good night. Uh, you know, and by the way, uh, it's not like everybody... Is, where's the video documentation of this? Uh, nowhere. Yeah, he's just telling a story. When God downloaded that to me and I realized what was happening, Francis Hunter had been on television speaking these promises of God and the angels of God were activated. I realized the power that God has released through the resource through CDs, DVDs, books, the things that we receive that talk about the things of the Spirit. Oh, good night. It's really an impartation for the heavens to come and visit us on the earth. 
I was sitting there amazed. This is not an impartation. This is an excrementation. And thinking, you know, Frances Hunter, she's gone on to, to heaven. She's not even on the earth any longer. But God is still using her words through the media, through the resource, through the things that she was faithful to, to record and, and, and to document when she was here. Apparently, this woman's words, I mean, they're the very words of God. Yeah, if you read the Bible, I mean... You know what's so funny is is that if you've listened to this program, my program, for any amount of time, you know that, well, we often read the Bible here, and I try, I spend a lot of time trying to teach people what the Scriptures say, especially trying to untangle the mess that a lot of preachers do. And, you know, never once have I seen feathers fall while I was opening up God's Word and teaching it. Never once have I seen angels in my bathroom. And uh, nor have I seen them come into the studio or linger in the lobby or um, uh, none of that. No, I haven't even seen play, seen them playing poker. I mean, uh, this is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And on a similar note, um, uh, if you've been uh, struggling with uh, your weight, uh, Todd White here uh, from Extreme Prophetic, I mean, he's going to reveal to us God's uh, weight loss formula the never-before-known secret formula for uh, weight loss. Here, here we go. Here's Todd White. Hey, guys. How you doing? Great. Just wanted to uh, share a little bit about something that's been on my heart, something that God put on my heart actually back in January of this year. Really? He put it on your heart? We actually... Apparently his heart's like a table or something. You could put things on it, you know, like a lamp or... My wife and I and actually a group from our church actually started a... This program, but before that, I like God. I really wanna, I really wanna change the way I eat. I really wanna change the way I eat. I don't wanna do a diet because diets don't work, and which is like way true because we can do diets all day and you yo-yo and you're up and down and it's the story of yeah. All right, get to the punch. What did God tell you of the eating frenzy, especially in America because America's, you know, we're an overweight nation. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he I'm really aware. spoke to me, and I was up to around two fifty-five. And spoke to me and he said, Todd, you know, you're one with me in your spirit and you're one with me in your soul. Your mind, will, and emotions, you're right there with me. So, but in your body, you're far from where you need to be. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I felt really corrected. I didn't feel hurt and I knew it was God. So whenever God calls you to... So God told him, <laughs> let me translate. So God was up in heaven and had some free time on his hand. So he decided to directly speak to... Um, Todd White here, and basically, this is the gist of it. Let me, you know, since people paraphrase God's word all the time, let me paraphrase God's word. Uh, this is God speaking. Hey, Todd, you're fat. Okay. Something. Whenever He calls you to a truth, then grace will enable you to walk that out. So there's what. Whenever God calls you to a truth, grace will enable you to walk that out. Now notice what He just did there. What's He doing with grace? This is some slippery stuff, by the way, and this is almost exactly how the Roman Catholic Church abuses the concept of grace. Grace isn't a thing like that. Grace is undeserved kindness. That's what grace is. It's undeserved kindness. Rather than you getting what you deserve, you get undeserved kindness. That's grace. Okay? He's talking about grace as if it's some kind of magical powder. Uh, that God sprinkles on you so that he can give you the grace power to do something. Grace isn't a powder. It isn't a substance. Grace isn't, uh, isn't electricity. It isn't a battery. But that's how he's, how he's talking about grace. 
Listen to this. No way for us to fulfill any of the Bible. We can't walk out any of Christianity. So what would make it, what would make us think that we can't, that we can do a diet without him? We can't. So what happens is when you do a diet. I know plenty of pagans who've appeared on the uh, biggest loser who Shazam. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how they did it, uh, but they, they ended up losing weight. I mean, hundreds of pounds. I mean, and I hate to break it to you, Todd, but there are, um, well, plenty of winners from the television show The Biggest Loser who were not Christians. And they had no dependence on God whatsoever to uh, go, go, go to the ranch to, you know, to you know, get involved in, in the Biggest Loser diet and uh and you know and then have the snot kicked out of them at the gym every day by Bob and Jillian I, I in fact I, last time i checked god isn't even a character right? he doesn't even make cameo appearances on the biggest loser what happens is you bite your lip and you try to like follow the program and then cravings comes and temptation comes and then all of a sudden you find yourself like a little bit leads to more leads to more yeah. and god showed me that the food that you're not supposed to eat, he actually taught me by grace, because it has to be by grace or else it's like a legalism thing. And, and you... oh, Complete misunderstanding and no biblical clue what salvation by grace alone through faith alone means. Apparently now grace, well, we don't want to turn into a legalistic thing when we're trying to lose weight. So we have to lose weight by grace through faith. <sighs> Banging head against desk. That feels much better. Thank you. You can't go there because none of Christianity can be walked out by the law. It's always by grace. But grace enables us to walk out the law, which is amazing. Jesus, it's the spirit of grace and truth. It's, it's just so good. So he showed me how you can bring that into your eating as well as your life. Because in the same way that I won't That's right, continue folks. or walk. The, God's secret weight loss formula is you need to learn how to eat by grace. Walk out in willful sin. I won't walk or step into willful sin because it's a violation of my conscience. I asked God, I said, yeah, mortal sin, venial sin, huh? yeah. Can you take the foods that are bad for me and can you make them a violation to my conscience? So I asked God, can you attach the same thing that you did with stepping into unrighteousness or willful sin to food that's not good for me? And it was something that I asked for. He didn't ask me to do Oh, okay. So you say, hey, listen, God, would you make it so that it's a violation of my conscience if I have a Twinkie? <sighs> that I did because I know that in order for me to walk Christian life out, I have to be fully dependent upon Holy Spirit for everything I do. So in order for me to walk out an eating program and for it to be developed into a change of life, a complete transformation, like just like we're transformed Right? Just by the renewing of our mind. It's true that Holy Spirit can attach it because He wants to give us the desires of our heart. And if the desire that you have in your heart is for your body to come into fitness, is for your life to come into your temple, to be taken care of your temple the way that actually Bible teaches. What happens is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will come upon your life. Holy Spirit will empower you to walk out that very thing that God's called us to anyway. So what he's doing is he's showing me things that are bad for me, things that, no, you don't do that. No, like cheeseburger subs. Yeah, they taste good, 
But no, they're not bad, not bad for you. That people say, like, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. That would fall right into that thing. So I know that a cheeseburger sub is going to hurt me. It's not going to help me. So I've asked God to attach this thing to it. So what he did was he, he attached it to it. So now every day when I'm going through my eating, and I'm going through what I, what I need to eat and what I can't have, the can't-haves don't overpower the can-haves. So it's not a list... So basically, you get direct revelation from the Holy Spirit who convicts your heart. And basically, if you, if you are you know, in a cafeteria setting, all you have to do is point at a particular food and the Holy Spirit is basically Jiminy Cricket. No, 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 don't touch that. No, no, not that. Yeah, you can have some of that, but don't have two, uh, two helpings. Uh, yeah, no, yes, you can have that. No, yes, no. Uh-huh. Oh, and see, and the God will just speak to you directly. So that you can supernaturally know what foods to eat and not to eat, and hopefully what portions to have them. And so there you go. That's uh, God's uh, secret weight loss formula from uh, Todd White from NeckMinistries.com and Extreme Prophetic. I mean, who knew? I mean, wow. How did the pagans lose weight? I mean, uh, <sighs> if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. 
preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room, or sit in silence for several minutes, or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair, and... Oh. No. Hold on a second. You out there! How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, president and founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They are designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit karm.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. back
warning. If you got some preacher or teacher claiming he's having impartations of the angelic, run. They're not pointing you to Christ. They're just there to take your money and send you to hell. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95. That's pittance. Uh, to, uh, to, but it's not to us, though. We've got to tell you, it's not to us. Uh, it's a small amount for you, big amount for us when you multiply it across uh, a large number of people that we're trying to get to join the crew so that we can uh, every month be able to meet our budgeted expenses. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. From the Christian Post, the latest op-ed piece from Albert Muller called The End of Men. Interesting piece. Uh, Al Muller writes, he says, Is our postmodern post-industrial society simply better suited to women than to men? Hannah Rosen uh, makes the case for this claim in the current issue of The Atlantic, and her article demands close attention. Men, she argues, are simply failing and are sorry, <clears throat> not failing, but falling behind women in almost every sector of culture, influence, and economic power. This shift, she understands, is nothing less than unprecedented in the span of human history. Rosin begins her article with the fact that uh, sex selection technologies in the West are now more often used to select a preference for girls uh, than for boys, reversing the historical trend. Why, she explains. Uh, man has been the dominant sex since, well, the dawn of mankind, but for the first time in human history, uh, that is change, uh, changing and with stock and speed, cultural and economic changes always reinforce uh, each other, and the global economy is evolving in a way that is eroding the historical preferences for male children worldwide. Rosin's article is well-documented and forceful in argument. The bottom line is that the claim that the trend and trajectory of the global economy have for some time now been headed toward female skills and talents. At the most basic level, this means a shift from physical strength to intellectual energies and education. At the next level, it also means a shift from leadership models more associated with males toward the nurturing leadership uh, more associated with women. In any event, the changes are colossal. Nothing has brought this into clearer sight than the current global uh, recession. In the United States, the recession has been dubbed the he session due to the fact that three quarters of eight million jobs lost uh, were lost by men. Even more devastating to men, most of these jobs will not return given the vast changes the recession has brought about. The worst hit industries were overwhelmingly male and deeply identified with macho. They are construction, manufacturing, high finance. Some of these jobs will come back, Rosin predicts, but the overall pattern of dislocation is neither temporary nor random. It's just not the United States. It's not, it's not just the United States either. In Iceland, Prime Minister Johan, yeah, I'm going to mess this name up. <clears throat> Let's just say Prime Minister Johanna <laughs> from Iceland. I cannot pronounce that. I'm not even going to try. I, I, I butcher enough things on this radio program. 
I wouldn't want to disrespect the Prime Minister of Iceland. So Prime Minister Johanna, <laughs> the first openly lesbian head of state, ran her campaign for office with a pledge to end the age of testosterone. Lovely. <clears throat> But the picture in the United States is particularly striking. For the first time in the nation's history, women now outnumber men in the workforce. The working class, which has long defined our notions of masculinity, Rosen argues, is slowly turning into a matriarchy with men increasingly absent from the home and women making all the decisions. Why? The post-industrial economy is indifferent to men's size and strength. The attributes that are most valuable today, social intelligence, open communication, the ability to sit and to focus... Well, are a minimum, not predominantly male. Rosin actually makes two uh, main points and both demand attention. The first has to do with what is taking place in the working class families. Matriarchy, uh, Rosin describes, is now coming full, more fully into view. Uh, in many cases, it's husbands and fathers who are unemployed and wives and mothers who are, who have been paying, uh, who have paying jobs. This means a huge shift in the male function and many Men just exit the family process or forfeit decision-making. Rosin offers, uh, refers to these men as casualties of the end of the manufacturing era. Across the nation, older men are increasingly unemployed and younger men face little hope of a job in this sector, the virtual birthright of previous generations. Well, that's okay. Men just live in their mom's basements and play video games all day long. <coughs> Sorry. Of the 15 job classifications marked for future growth, men dominate only two, janitorial services and computer engineering. So if you're good with a broom or can write to, in C++, then you've got a future. Uh, the same pattern is now extending to managerial and professional roles where women currently hold 51.4% of jobs. Why are women gaining and men falling behind? Rosin explains, uh, they make up 54% of all accountants and hold about half of all banking and insurance jobs. About a third of America's physicians are now women, as are 45% of associates in law firms, and both of these percentages are rising fast. A white-collar economy values raw intellectual horsepower, which men and women have in equal amounts. It also requires communication uh, skills and social intelligence, areas in which women, according to many studies, have a slight edge. Perhaps the most important, for better or worse, uh, it increasingly requires formal education credentials, which women are more prone to acquire, particularly early in adulthood. Interesting. Uh, beyond the numbers, uh, Rosin reports that uh, office environments and corporate cultures are adapting to women as well, reshaped by the gender transformation of the last 25 years. And yet, after all this, Rosin makes her most powerful argument when she looks not at the current workforce, uh, but at the at what's happening on America's college and university campuses, there she explains, uh, we can, uh, can see with absolute clarity that in the coming decades the middle class will be dominated by women. For Christians, the importance of this article is even greater. God intended for men to have a role as workers, reflecting God's own image in their vocation. The most important issue here is not the gains made by women, but the displacement of men. This has undeniable consequences for these men and for everyone who loves and depends upon them. The failure of boys to strive for educational attainment is a sign of looming disaster. Almost anyone who works with youth and young adults will tell you, as a rule, boys are simply not growing up as fast as girls. This means that their transition to manhood is stunted, delayed, and often incomplete. Meanwhile, the women are moving on. What does this mean for large sectors of our society to become virtual matriarchies? How do we prepare the church to deal with such a world while maintaining biblical models of manhood and womanhood? 
The elites are wakening up to the fact that these vast changes point to a very different future. Christians have better know that matters far more important than economics are at stake. These trends represent nothing less than a collapse of male responsibility, leadership, and expectations. The real issue here is not the end of men, but the disappearance of manhood. Yep, he's right on. And the solution to this is not the warrior sermon. No, this is a this is serious stuff that we're dealing with here. It's the loss of manhood. I tell you, we raise our boys to be men, and we don't have to worry about them in that sense. They'll do just fine. But the problem is, is that so many boys are basically, uh, they, they grow up biologically. I know a lot of boys who are in their 20s when they already should be men. Something to think about. All right, switching gears one more time here. <laughs> when churches jump the shark, I already gave a little bit of the historical background on this regarding Happy Days. And... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, let me read this. This was written by Derek Hamby of the Associated Baptist Press. And uh, there's something just really off here. Uh, there's no reason why any church should jump the shark. Why? Because we've been given an eternal gospel to proclaim. God's word is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. That being the case, um, the gospel, Christian doctrine... The scriptures, God's word, never jumps the shark. Never. But apparently churches do now. I read, When does a church jump the shark? That phrase refers to the time Fonzie, the star of the TV comedy Happy Days, jumped a shark, well, literally, and has served as an example of a TV show that tries something strange in order to boost sagging ratings. I wonder if many churches are trying to pack the house by doing the same thing. I'm reminded of the story from the life of fundamentalist Baptist preacher J. Frank Norris about the time he baptized a rodeo cowboy and had the man's horse stand in the back of the church to watch. Personally, I believe he jumped the shark long before the cowboy baptism. But today it seems many churches in the desire to be innovative and creative are jumping their own sharks. Ed Young Jr. recently hosted a car giveaway extravaganza. <clears throat> I just had to read it like that because, you know, car giveaway extravaganza. You can't read it any other way on the radio. Uh, Young gave away 13 cars on Mother's Day. Some were for the needy. Others were for random uh, were for random drawings. Well, I'm not against the idea of helping women in this way. But listening to the clip, it sounded just like an episode of Oprah Winfrey. He announced it with the excitement of a talk show, and the crowd congregation responded with cheers. Uh, this is the same man who preached on sex with a bed on stage and gave a daily sex challenge to couples. I recently saw a video of him doing a rap song for a preacher's conference called You Be You. I really do believe Ed Young has jumped the shark so many times I've lost count. <clears throat> Young isn't the only one. Preachers are preaching with tanks, cars, entire stage sets. Some megachurches constantly bring in celebrities and script their services in ways that are slick and polished, like an episode of American Idol. I know one church that designated its children's department to model a kid's show and baptize children with a cannon shooting confetti over the crowd. 
so much jar- sh- shark jumping, I can't keep up. I watched a video clip of Paige Patterson, president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, when he rode, dressed like General Patton, into the chapel on a Hummer with guns. Blank machine guns were firing. He got off, took off his helmet, pointed around and said, We are going to take the hill. The hill is the neighborhood where the seminary sits, and he was announcing a new evangelism effort to visit homes in the area. The crowd went wild. Even schools are jumping sharks. Now, I'm not bitter over mega churches or big churches. Smaller churches can jump the shark just as easily. Some smaller churches do their own, uh, do their own gimmicks, and many try to model what they see the big churches do. Uh, many small-town churches jump baby sharks. <laughs> have I ever jumped the shark? Well, I have to say yes. There are times I can worry about uh, how things look or whether people like to worship now, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for quality and the best in what we do, but the best quality I do is not for me, but it's for God. I do want to be relevant so folks can connect so that the real needs and real people are brought to a real God. Uh, this very article many uh, used many cultural references, and I see no problem with that. There just comes a time when we cross a line that makes us look very fake and quite silly. This isn't a call to any style of worship because this happens in all styles. As worship leaders in churches, we are going to have to work hard to help our folk understand worship and strive to experience a holy God who can transform lives. Hang on a second. I can't believe I read that hack up a hairball. What does the sentence mean? Yeah, let me go back here. See, this, this, apparently this particular article has just jumped a shark. At least in my mind. Let's see here. We have to work hard to help our folks understand worship and, here we go, strive to experience a holy God who can transform lives. I don't even know what that sentence means. Strive to experience. How do you, I mean, how do do I strive to experience God? Sorry, that's a different show. All right, let's continue. It's only a matter of time before some preacher out there literally does try to water ski over a shark to boost attendance. I just wonder if he'll look as cool as the Fonz when he does. Yeah, you know, Derek, I got to tell you, um, now that you've said it, the one thing I gotta, I gotta, I've learned doing this program now for two years that um, you can't parody the church anymore because as soon as you say it, somebody's going to do it. In fact, we should probably have a pool, you know, some kind of a betting pool. Will it be Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble? Uh, will <laughs> who will be the first pastor to jump the shark? Will it be Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, Craig Groeschel, Gary Lamb? Who will be the first purpose-driven pastor? It's not. Gonna, it's not a matter of if they will do it. It's a matter of when. So we we might as well start putting a betting pool out there now and you know try to make some money off the event. <sighs> All right, we are. Oh man. We are up on our second break. When we come back, we got a doozer of a sermon for you. Those of you in the business world who live in the cubicle mazes of the corporate world and uh, dwell there, uh, we've got a great sermon for you called Good to Great. It's based on Jim Collins's book, Good to Great. And, you know, same, same title. From Christ Life Church in Tempe, Arizona, Pastor Philip Goldsberry. Yeah, Goldsberry. And, and I wonder if it should be Philip Doonesberry. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. 
Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, President and Founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They are designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org. That's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. (laughs) The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. 
Oh, this would be so relevant for all of you uh, business cubicle dwellers out there. And now that I know that 51.4% of you are women, I mean, this is just a sermon that would just appeal to such a large swath of uh, the American culture. Too bad it's not biblical. Let's cue up the music. Here we go. Hey, ho! Look at the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us direct from Christ Life Church, Tempe, Arizona. Pastor Philip Goldsberry, whom we should refer to from now on as Pastor Philip Doonesbury. The name of the sermon is Good to Great. Sermon derived from the book by Jim Collins under the same name, Good to Great. Jim Collins, by the way, is also author of... Oh, what is the name of that book? Built to Last. Yeah, he's well known in MBA and business leadership and management circles. And just remember, it's Jim Collins who taught us that good is the enemy of great. And I'm sure Pastor Doonesbury will be uh, pointing that out to us as well. Let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here is a sermon on the business book. I wish I was making this up. Um, Good to great. Here we go. Let's welcome everybody to Tempe and Casa Grande campuses. Come on, let's put our hands together and make it feel welcome today. Glad all of you are here today. Right now, we've also realized we have an audience of people that watch us online. So uh, if you're watching online, God bless you. God bless you. Any information you need, please email us, pastorphil at christlifechurch.org. Glad that all of you are here today. You're in for a treat today. Today's message starts a series that I am passionate about. If a young man comes... Wow, he's passionate about it. Yeah, that's... Wow. He's passionate about it. I mean, that just makes it completely okay for him to be preaching a sermon about it because he's passionate about it. That You see, because he's experienced passion in regard to this topic. Is it found in the Bible? Is it sound doctrine? Does it point us to Christ and what he's done for us? You know. comes to me and he asked about the ministry or he asked about business, one of the first books besides the Bible that I will encourage him to read and almost make required reading is a book called Good to Great. Good to Great, written by a guy named Jim Collins. He wrote a book called Built to Last, which is one of the, these two books together, incredible books in business. So if you want to track with me during this series, I would encourage you to read the book Good to Great, but there's a second book. Yeah, don't read your Bible. If you want to track with him during this series, well, you need to go get Good to Great. And, you know, it's if you're in business, it's the next book after the Bible that you should be reading. Probably inspired by God, I'm sure. A book called Good to Great in God's Eyes by a Christian author, Chip Ingram. So if you want to follow with me during this series, I'll be using some of the information out of those two books. But the word great is an elusive word that we have used from so many perspectives that it's almost like the word love. Remember during the 411 on 316 service, we talked about love and how that we love vanilla ice cream and then we also love our wife. In other words, you just reduced her down to a bowl of vanilla. Great's the same way. We have great kids, 
great yards. That's a great Scott. Great car. And then we talk about we have a great God. Now, now, have you ever noticed how that those things seemingly just don't go together real well? How that greatness is really not just something that is so elusive, but we've made it to where the word great does not have, we've actually cheapened the word by the way we've contextualized it to everything that is inside. For example, oh, this is just a blight on humanity. I, oh, I can't believe that we've done this. Oh, oh, this, oh, this is terrible. This is just, I can't, seriously, I mean, really, I, we have taken, we've cheapened the word great. Oh, how dare we do such a terrible thing as that? Yeah, you probably, I mean, if you're guilty of cheapening the word great, I mean, you probably are going to hell. Example. Have you ever heard somebody refer to something as, wow, that was a great meal, and then look at his wife and say, wow, you're just one great lady? Have you ever noticed how the word great just doesn't seem to have that oomph to it? Oh, you are so right. Oh, what can we do to save the word great from being mistreated and, and watered down so? So every week I'm going to give you from an acrostic G-R-E-A-T. So what does that G-R-E-A-T stand for? Great. I have no idea because it's not in the Bible. Three people are alert right now, so let's try that again. G-R-E-A-T spells. So today is, you know, it reminds me of Frosted Flakes. They're great. G, because that's the first letter of the word great. The word G stands for go to God for the definition of of greatness. You've got to go to God. If you want to know what greatness is, then you have to go to God. You have to go to God because apparently this is a way of baptizing Jim Collins's book, Good to Great, because, well, <clears throat> just want to let you know, I, I've read the book, Good to Great. In fact, I have two copies of it here in my library. Why? Oh, don't ask. It's best if you don't ask these questions. But if you really need to know, I, you know, I got one when I was as an MBA student, somebody gave me one as a gift, and I just didn't even think to, to hand it out. I mean, I had no idea that good to great was, you know, like the next best thing next to the Bible, <sighs> apparently. But I, having had having read good to great, I can tell you with absolute confidence and certainty that Jim Collins nowhere says that the G in great stands for go to God for your definitions of greatness. So... um this is I, apparently uh, Pastor Doonesbury's um, attempt to, you know, to baptize this and make it sound godly so that, I mean, after all, this is sermon time at church. Without it, everything else is just nominal. It does not quite meet the top. Let me ask you, how many of you in this room want to be just normal? I I do. <laughs> I do. I, in fact, if I were to attain the a strive to normalness, that would be an improvement, at least in my case. Yeah, you're afraid to put your hand up because you know me too well. I don't want to be normal. I don't want to be average. You want know averages? Average is the best of the worst and the worst of the best. Yeah, so, this is what Jesus taught. I'm sure it's in, in the Gospel of Thomas somewhere. That's a Gnostic Gospel, by the way. It's not a real Gospel. I mean, you want to be average. But we all want to be great. We want to be just awesome. But how do you define what greatness is? How do you put a definition on greatness? 
great. I want to be a great single individual. For those of you that are single, I want to be one great single young lady or young man. Or I want to be, I want to be a great couple. I want our marriage to just be incredible that people just know, wow, that's one great marriage. You know, I want, someday I hope to be a great grandpa. You're in business for yourself. I want people to know my business is great. Not good. It's great. People do not pay for average. Well, apparently they tie at your church. So you need to write that down, especially if you're in business. People do not pay for average. They always sacrifice for above average. That's what develops and what allows the good contractor from the bad contractor. That's what keeps the good restaurant from the bad restaurant because they've learned the key to go from good to great. And my question today is... Uh, any Bible verses yet? Any, 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 nothing? No, no Bible. Maybe the God's Word will make an appearance. I don't know if we're going to get a gospel nugget either. How do we describe greatness? I want you to listen to these phrases because I'm going to give you the word great in the context of God and see if this helps you. Titus 2.13. Okay, so now we've done a word search and found great in the, in the okay, so Titus. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, notice that, average God? No, great God. He's a great God. Can you tell me how? Can you fill in some specifics here? What makes God so great? I mean, you're a pastor. You're preaching here. Take some time and share with me what it is that makes God so great. And our Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Hebrews 4.14. Since we have a marginal, average, everyday run-of-the-mill. No, we have a great high priest. What makes our high priest so great? Can you... Spend some time in the Bible showing me that. Jesus, the Son of God, who has gone into heaven, let us hold on to the faith we have. Luke one thirty two, the angel describing Jesus prior to his birth. He will be very great. He will be great. Can you tell us how? And will be called the Son of the Most High. Hebrews 13.20, God raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Yeah, can you show me how Jesus is a great shepherd? I mean, you're just... It looks to me like you went on to like BibleGateway.org and typed in the word great in their Bible search engine and you thought, oh, wow, here's some verses. I'll just rip them out of context. Why don't you explain to us what makes Jesus so great? It's actually a fascinating story and would actually spend require you to spend some time in the Bible actually teaching the scriptures. You know, but I mean, maybe it's too much for me to be asking you to do that during the sermon time at church. I mean, I understand you got more important things to talk about. Because of the blood of his death, his blood began the eternal agreement that God made with his people. Notice, God did not call me. God did not sacrifice his son and then call me into being average. God called me. Wow. Uh Wow, so he basically took those verses out of context and then made the leap saying that God didn't call him, Pastor Doonesbury, uh, to um, to be average. You see, because Jesus is great, therefore you have to be great too. So this apparently this is the law of greatness, law. And he said he made it through the agreement of the blood of his son that I would be destined for greatness. You say, no, but what's... Those passages weren't about you, Pastor Doonesbury. They were about Christ. It doesn't say anything about you being destined for greatness. 
I mean, just to put it bluntly, those it's not about you. It's great me because, see, some of you already have I've already equated that with a car or a house or a job or an amount of money. But that's not it. Jesus Christ, God's greatest gift to the earth, came and redeemed us and shed his blood and gave his life that you and I do not have to live normal lives anymore. We can live. Wow. Wow. I was almost ready to play the gospel nugget um, sound uh, that we play, but that wasn't the gospel. Let me back this up and play this again. Wow. All right, here we go. This people notice God did not call me. God did not sacrifice his son and then call me into being average. God called me and he said he made it through the agreement of the blood of his son that I would be destined for greatness. You say, no, but what's great me? Because see, some of you already have I've already equated that with a car or a house or a job or an amount of money. But that's not it. Jesus Christ, God's greatest gift to the earth, came and redeemed us and shed his blood and gave his life that you and I do not have to live normal lives anymore. We can live above normal. We can live above average. Uh, so Jesus Christ shed his blood so that I don't have to live a normal average life. Gosh, you know, that's kind of funny because I thought the Bible said that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I didn't realize he died so that I can be great. I just don't see that in the Bible. It's because God gave his greatest gift to us. And let me ask you something. What will you give back to God now that he's given his greatest to you? Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. I mean... Now, we, now, what will you give back to God now that he's given his greatest? Wow. This is this just turned Christ's death on the cross into complete law. It's not gospel anymore. It's just flat out law. And you better get busy with it so that you can be great. What will you give back to God now that he's given his greatest to you? See, if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. Listen to this quote. This is oh man, the first 63 words out of the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Good is the enemy of great. Some uh, he's reading out of what? Not the Bible. Some of you should write that down right now. In fact, you probably need to underline that in your notes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Good to Great, Chapter 1, Verse 1. Good is the enemy of great. One of the first jobs I ever had, the first companies I ever started, I was about 15 years old, started a company of a detail, detailing cars. That was besides the other job that I had, but I mean, this was one of the ones I started it, did it myself, bought my own material, went out and got my own business. And I would have people that would come to me as a 15, 16 year old kid and would say, would you please do my car? Because I learned some, some little techniques in the early days of my life from my dad that what is the difference between a good car and a great car when it's cleaned up? See, remember the days of white wall tires? How many of you are old enough to remember what white wall tires were? 
I just want to let you know that this little story from Pastor Doonesbury's life um, is not found in the Bible. I've seen people wash their entire car and never clean the white walls on their car. And I'm thinking, that is an atrocity. Why would you wash your car and not wash the white walls? Well, on top of that, why would you wash the car, wash the white walls, and then not clean the wheel wells? You know, talking about doing a good job, I mean, I don't understand. Why would you, you know, as a pastor and a preacher, you know, be preaching from a business book rather than the Bible? I mean, that makes about as much sense as not washing your white walls. I mean, this is a sermon about being, you know, going from good to great. But how do you be a great pastor if you don't preach from the word and you don't actually correctly teach it? I mean, wouldn't that just make you less than average and more than more mediocre than great as a pastor? I mean, what is it that makes a great pastor? Well, I th- I think the Bible makes it clear that a great pastor is one who dedicates himself to pro- proclaiming and teaching the full counsel of the Word of God and proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins from every page of Scripture. I think that would qualify as as what it means to be a great pastor. I mean, here we've got a pastor preaching about Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, and the irony here is is that he's being a less than average and more pretty much a mediocre pastor here rather than being a great one because he's not doing what God told him to do. So I learned this little trick is there's certain stuff you can buy, and once you've washed the tires, you clean the white walls, you can then put the stuff that makes them shine, but then you go up inside the wheel wells and you spray it with the stuff, and when someone comes up, they've never seen their car look that good. Now, what was the difference? It was about five minutes of labor that took a car detail from good to great. Tomorrow, many of you are going to walk on your job, and you're going to ask yourself, am I going to do a good job, or am I going to do a great job? Jim Collins said, good is the enemy of great. need to remind you, Jim Collins was not one of the disciples of Jesus. He wasn't a prophet. God did not speak to him when writing the book. And that is one of the key reasons, I'm still reading from Jim Collins, the why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life. Just settle for it. Well, it's it's just the way our family's going to be. We're always going to get up and fight every morning before breakfast, and then we're going to have a hateful... Apparently, this is the 11th commandment that's being broken here. Um, You know, if you are settling for a good life rather than striving to have a great life then you're guilty of breaking the 11th commandment. I don't know what it is, but, you know, yeah, it's the good to great commandment. Breakfast, and then we're going to get in the car and scream all the way to school, and then you're going to get out of the car, and I'm going to say, I'm sorry, and then you get back in the car, and I say, look, I'm sorry for that this morning. We'll get an argument on the way home from school, and then we get to home. I'm going to holler about your bed not being made. You know, I'm asking you a question. Do you want to live a life of just being good? Because if I go to God for greatness, something's got to happen inside of me that no longer am I taking my cues from People magazine. Have you ever... Okay, so you're condemning people for taking their cues from People magazine, but you're taking your cues from a business book as a pastor. Why is it okay for you to take your cues from a business book, uh, but people can't take their cues from... People magazine, I'm sure you're going to tell them they need to take their cues from the Bible, 
but you're not taking your cues from the Bible in this. Well, it's not even a sermon. I don't even need a crucified and risen Lord for this stuff. Yeah, it's true. I made it all the way through my entire MBA and learned leadership on top of it. I mean, I, my the emphasis of my MBA is is leadership and organizational change. And I was able to do it without writing a single paper that referred back to the leadership principles of the Bible. I know it sounds like sacrilegious, but it's true. Not one of the papers I wrote during my MBA had anything to do with Jesus or the Bible. Mm. The subject matter didn't call for that. Who knows how people, well, you know what? Wow, look at that purse she's got. Or look at that, the way they do that. And we define in our minds somebody that we see or somebody that enamors us that for the moment we think, wow, I want to be like them because that just looks great. But all of a sudden you get it. Have you ever really wanted something really, really, really bad and then when you got it, you had buyer's remorse? Like, oh, man, it's not what I thought it was. So how do you define greatness? What happens to us in our lives is that we get so used to doing things one way that we won't let anybody else teach us how to change. For example, we do what we've always been established and taught and someone showed us and we're afraid to step outside that box. Fear of the unknown is one of the greatest fears that anybody fights with in this world. Fear of the unknown. Again, I just asked the question, do you need a crucified and risen Lord for this? Do you even need the Bible for this? This is a sermon at Christ Life Church in Tempe, Arizona. This is the sermon. And so we've always been used to doing just like this, just like this, just like this. And if someone says, you know, if you do it like this, oh, no, I can't do that. I've always done it like this. I, I, I couldn't do that. Many times what captivates us and kidnaps us from greatness is the fact that we become stuck in a rut. And you know what a rut is? A rut is a grave with both ends kicked out of it. I've only heard that like 10,000 times, and it's not in the Bible. Yeah, but that's the way I've always done it. Isaiah 55 and verse 8 says this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let me, let me say this. When you all so Isaiah 55 is all about Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. I mean, that's what God had in mind there in Isaiah 55, right? Huh? Yeah, I don't think so. Let's take a look. I'd like to get into some Bible reading anyway, because this is just reprehensible. Isaiah 55. Okay, hang on a second here. Typing it into my computerized Bible. By the way, I do read from the ESV. I lovingly refer to it as the English Sanctified Version. The S stands for Standard, English Standard Version. Isaiah chapter 55. Let's just go to verse 1 and let's read it in context. I mean, let's find out if Isaiah 55 is all about these good to great principles that... uh, Pastor Doonesbury here is uh, preaching on God speaking. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why will you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat 
what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you, that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And as for our God, he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Yeah, when you put it into context, Isaiah 55 is this amazing gospel passage in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation of Christ. Verse 7, the one immediately before Pastor Doonesbury quotes Isaiah 55 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that me that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God, for God will abundantly pardon. Did you hear anything about the gospel when Pastor Doonesbury decided to quote from Isaiah 55? Nope. You see, that whole my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are my ways your ways. That has to do with the gospel, not about good to great. Let's continue. Always are doing it the way you want to do it. You may be missing God's way to do it. And that's where God's definition of greatness comes is when you allow him to show you how to live your life. Oh, man, this is just pure, unadulterated law. It's not even good law. It's just completely made-up law. Ugh. Now, one of the things that I think that keeps us captivated is the fact that we have good intentions. How many of you well, we all know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but that's not in the Bible either. We have really good intentions about something. I, 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 I got in trouble yesterday. My wife, um, it was clean the garage day. It wasn't originally clean the garage day, but it turned into clean the garage day because my son and I were doing other things, and my wife walks out and she says, we're all clean the garage today. So guess what we all did yesterday? We cleaned the garage. Got it. Yeah, I, I kind of figured that's what you meant by clean the garage day. With you. And sitting next to the garage door is something that I love very much. I love running water. If you ever want to make me happy, you just get me a fountain. Get me a fountain that's so big that the neighbors call it and make the, call the police because it's just so loud. I love water running. Well, I had this beautiful little fountain that I've had. I think someone got it for me uh, several years ago. And I had it in my office, and it ran and ran and ran and ran and ran, and it got that hardened water, and it got stopped up. So I set it next to the door and says, I'm going to put some vinegar in it, and I'll get it all unstopped, and I'll put it in my office again. That fountain has been sitting by the door for over three months. 
I've almost tripped over it several times. I know she almost has tripped over it. My intentions were to get the fountain running again and get in my office and hear the soothing sound of the water. No one ever done this, so this is just confession for me. Somebody... I mean, it sounds like a confession of mediocrity to me. Thank you for allowing me into your world today. But no, how many of you have had good intentions about stuff? You bought, some of you bought a thigh master and a gut buster. And it's still in the box. Let's be honest. How many of you have a treadmill in your house? Come on, raise your hand. How many have a treadmill? How many of the last time that treadmill was used have been over six months? Yeah, kind of what I thought. Bunch of mediocre slubs there. Good intentions. Oh, I'm going to start eating better. How many still eating the same thing you've always eaten? You know, you're just eating the same old junk, stopping at McDonald's, going through. This is a naggy sermon. This is all naggy law. Wow. Wendy's drive-thru. I mean, you're an Arby's fan. And I'm, I mean, you, oh, I'm going to stop this. I'm not going to do this anymore. Because until we change our ways, we will continue to live in a life of mediocrity and just being good. And good is always the enemy of great. So today I want to give you three steps to transition from good to great. Three steps that will help you to... Are these in the Bible? Three steps to transition from good to great. Lovely. Transition from good to great. Let me give you the first one. The first one, God's first criterion for greatness is obedience. (sighs) Here we go again. It's just more law. He just admitted that he doesn't obey and that he's pretty much mediocre himself. So apparently he's not even an example of greatness. You just have to obey. You have to learn to obey. God wants us to just obey. And the difference between going from good to great is just be obedient in what you know. You go first. How's that working out for you? Uh, Do you just obey? Um, Does the forgiveness of sins play into the facts when you don't obey, which is every day? Just do what you know you should do. (sighs) Like, wow, I could have had a V8. I mean, that was the missing component. I mean, just do what you know you're supposed to do. Oh, thank you for finally saying it, because now I can just do it. Ugh. See, what happens is someone says, you know, but I don't know. I don't understand the book of Revelation about all those, you know, all those wars and who's the great whore. And is uh, there going to be like helicopters shooting out things and what 666 stand for? And you, how many of you read the book of Revelation? Well, I don't, I don't understand all that. And so I'm just not quite sure what I'm supposed to do. You know what? The whole book of a uh, uh, whole book of Bible is not the book of Revelation. So what you do know. Do that. It's kind of a novel thought. What you know you should be doing it, just do it. The first step to take you from being good to great is obedience. Matthew 5. Actually, this just takes you to pure pharisaical greatness. 519. Anyone who breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. How many want, Look, I'm the least. I'm the worst. I'm the bad. No, nobody wants to be the worst, the least, the bad. But look at this in Matthew 5, 19. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to move from just being good to living a life of greatness. Keep in mind Hebrews eleven six. without faith, 
it's impossible to please God. So if you're going to just think that you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven by your raw, naked obedience, Christ will pretty much say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Without faith, it's impossible to to please God. It is only by faith that we are able to keep these commandments. You have to practice what you know you should do. For example, if you know you want to have a great marriage, there's some keys, biblical keys to having a great marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That's a key principle of moving from where you are. You say, well, I don't think I want to get married because I want to try the shoes on before I wear them. Well, that may sound great in a shoe store, but doesn't work in God's commodity. Well, we're already, we're already hitched and hatched and we've already matched and we've already had all these kids and we don't love each other anymore. Well, that doesn't mean you've got to stay like that anymore. Why don't you take that good marriage into a great marriage by doing it God's way and allowing God to give you the definition of what greatness looks like in a marriage? Right now, we're in the midst of uh, one of the worst economic times that America has seen in years, even from the time of my great-grandparents. And yet Warren Buffett has said that the largest transfer of wealth will take place during this time. The largest transfer of wealth will take place during this time. The other day I met with a gentleman and a friend of his has just recently purchased 160 houses with cash in the last six months here in the valley. Not 100, not, not six, 160 the largest transfer. Of, well, I want God to bless my finances. Well, let me hang on. Don't get don't get don't, don't get weird now. The offerings already been taken. Some of you have had good intentions about tithing now for six months, and you didn't do it this morning. Well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to no because if you want to go from good, if you want to go from just being average and being normal and struggling, then you might ought to let God put the definition of greatness. Because G, let God give you the definition for greatness. The great the definition of greatness comes from God. Do it God's way. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your increase. You see my point? Obedience. See, not until oh, I see your point, but. There ain't no way that you're obedient. No way. You are every bit as much of a rotten sinner as I am. So you just have absolutely no authority to be speaking this way because you ain't pulling it off. This is a legalistic sermon. And I, in fact, if you say that you, you, that you were obedient, let me talk to your wife and kids. Just let me chat with them for a few minutes. I'll get things straightened out. Tensions, but obedience. Many times we want salvation, we want eternal life, we want the blessings of God, but we're not ready to step into the obedience factor that takes us from good, that takes us to great. Is it me or did he make it sound like salvation was contingent upon our obedience? Let me back this up. Here we go again. Listen carefully. You see my point? Obedience. See, not intentions, but obedience. Many times we want salvation, we want eternal life, we want the blessings of God, but we're not ready to step into the obedience factor that takes us from good, that takes us to great. Yeah, that's pretty much right. He was definitely equating salvation with obedience. <laughs> uh, this is no gospel at all. Wow. I mean, this is just flat-out self-righteous Phariseeism. Unbelievable. No wonder he's preaching good to great. 
Now, let me give you another one. You heard on church news this morning on May 30th is Baptism Sunday here in Tempe. And for those of you watching in Casa Grande, it's June 27th. This is going to be the next baptism in Casa Grande. So between these campuses, some of you, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to get baptized. Let me tell you something. Your intentions will not give you a right before God to say, well, I meant to do it. The Bible- now, the ba- now baptism is done through the law. <clears throat> By the way, read the scriptures. Baptism is gospel. It's a gift. God's the one baptizing us and washing away our sins, burying us with Christ, raising us with Christ, circumcising our hearts, things like that. That's all the things that, that are attached to baptism. Baptism isn't run through the law. It's run through the gospel. Paul says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not is condemned. See, just believing and not following through in obedience is not enough to enter you into God's commodity. Oh, man. <laughs> this is just, uh, this is a false gospel. This is like Judaism, the Judaizers. Yeah, believing is enough. Faith isn't enough. If you're not obedient, well, this, then that, if that's the case, then Pastor Doonesbury isn't saved because I guarantee you he's not obedient. Obedience. And be the second one. God's second criterion for greatness is service. Service. Huh? What do you mean service? I don't want to serve. I just want to come and sit. I want to come and watch. I don't want to do anything. My goodness, thank God I'm here. Thank God I got out of the car. Thank God I'm sitting down. Thank God I'm taking up space. I've got a seat here. I don't want to serve. I just want to watch. Well, let's read a scripture here in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them all together and says, You know that the rulers of the heathen have power over them, and the leaders have complete authority. This, however, is not the way it shall be among you. In other words, he says, You know what? Here's the way it works in the world that you live in. There, you've got le- Jesus is apparently the next Moses. In Jesus, apparently, he spoke these words from Mount Sinai. He's the new Moses. Leaders, you've got authorities who tell you what to do. And Jesus said, mm, Not going to happen here. You're not going to have, you know, this hierarchy of the haves versus the have-nots. In fact, Jesus said it this way. If one of you wants to be great, and they're like, oh, yes, here he goes. Jesus, get me give it to us. All right, get your pen out, boys. Jesus, get me give it to us. Here we go. If we want to be great because we're tired of the Romans. Remember, they're under Roman oppression. And all of a sudden, the disciples saying, here it is. Here it is. All right, if, if you want to be great, they got their pen on, their, on, their, on the papyrus. He must be the servant of all. What? No, 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 Jesus, we want to be great. Well, if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. And if anyone wants to be first, he must be your slave, like the Son of Man, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life to redeem many people. My question to you is this. If we consider God to be... Did you hear the gospel right there? But came to give his life that he may redeem many people. That's the gospel. Okay, it was in the verse, and he completely is oblivious to the gospel. The most almighty, the most powerful, the greatest source of strength and power in the universe today and in the world that we know right now. And we know that he gave his only begotten son. And it says right here, he came to serve and to give his life to redeem many people. What are we to think we can get by with less? I, I, I wanted to play the gospel nugget sound, but... He turned the gospel into law. Wow. God has called us to first be obedient. Be obedient to what you know you should do. 
Today, if you're sitting here and you've not been obedient in the things of God, in the way of repentance and turning from sin, if you've not been obedient by, by being baptized, then be baptized. If you've not turned your heart and begin to say, I'm going to follow God's Word, then begin to follow God's Word. Just do what you know you should do right now. Be obedient. But then when you've learned that, then learn to be a servant. Don't try to always be on top of the pile. He who wants to be the greatest among you must be servant of all. See, greatness is achieved through service. Giving and serving others, not yourself. Jesus gave a parable one time. A guy had been beaten up on the side of the road. And all of a sudden it says that two religious people came by and saw him and said, Oh, wow, wow, that's horrible. That's really bad. That's not good. And passed on by said another one from the temple came. He pa- Oh, that's really bad. Passed on by. But it said there was a Samaritan, a lowly Samaritan, a reject of society who passed by and saw the man. And he put him in his own vehicle, his donkey, and took him to the nearest room, Holiday Inn. And he said, take care of him and I'll pay the bill. Jesus said, out of those three, who was the one that really loved his neighbor? And many times we want to say, yeah, I see the need. Yeah, I know I probably should help out. And I know probably, you know, I probably should participate. I mean, it's the least I could do. No, we don't really care about people who just want to do it out of obligation. We want you in a ministry in this church to say, I am gifted by God. God has placed us in my life and I want to offer to God what he has given to me. You know, Jesus said that all of us are given talents. Some of us are given more other talents. Some are given less talents. And he said, it's not the number of talents that you have. It's what you use because if you do not use it, God takes it from you. By the way, the parable of the talents isn't talking about talents like I have a talent for playing the guitar or I have a talent for sports. No, it was a sum of money. It's a parable. It was never meant. Oh, man, he's even running that through the law allow someone else to have it. If you're feeling mediocre and just good, guess what? God does not call you to live like that, but He's calling you the way you go to greatness is you learn to serve. You serve the least, you serve the last, and you serve the lost. I know, but I don't want to do that. I'm tired. I work all week. I don't want to come to church and do anything. I don't want to show up here on Thursday morning. I don't want to be here for prayer meeting on Wednesday morning. I don't want to help around the church. I mean, my goodness, don't you think I keep a full-time job down? I mean, the last thing I want to do is show up here and help Mike out on the facility doing painting, plumbing, electrical. I mean, that's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to work on Sunday mornings with a bunch of rugrats back in the nursery as they're screaming and ranting and raving and want their diapers changed. I mean, I'm out of that. Well, let me ask you something. If we learn to serve the least, the last, and the lost, you not think the hand of God will rest upon you. Right now, there's some incredible people serving in the nursery. Both on Notice the quid pro quo. If you do this, then the hand of God will rest upon you. This is pure, unadulterated law. The Tempe campus and Casa Grande campus, there are people that are in there taking care of screaming, crying babies. Some of them are your babies. And you know what? God's going to bless them. God's going to just bless their socks off. And you say, why are they so blessed? I want to be blessed like they are. Well, work, serve, obey. Just do something. You're not obeying. You're disobeying God. 
Pastor Doonesbury. God's gifted you. Stop being average and say, God, I want you to make me great. He said, well, this is just a ploy to get people involved in the church. No, it's not. Servanthood is not a ploy. Servanthood is when you mirror the character and the will of Jesus Christ. Only then. Because he said it right here. He said, I came to serve. Okay, the third one. God's third criterion for greatness, this is going to blow your mind, is heartfelt worship. If you want to move from just being an average, everyday, run-of-the-mill, good, to becoming great, then you have to learn how to worship. You say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's why you got these people up here. They do the worshiping for all of us. Really. Let's look at a verse here. John 4 and 23 says, The time is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that time has here already. You see, the Father, too, is actively seeking such people to worship Him. Now, that puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? Yeah, considering the fact that you ran it through the law, that's a great gospel story of of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's a fantastic gospel story of the forgiveness of sins and repentance by an adulterous woman. And now you're just taking one little verse of this and turning it into complete new Mosaic law. I mean, Jesus, the new lawgiver. So, well, I thought Pastor Chad's trying to get us to worship. Well, no, he's leading us in worship, but the Father is, he's seeking such to worship. Do you know that in the midst of our worship today that God was here? God was here. Where, where was he? Oh, he's right there where you're sitting. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He was here. You say, well, I didn't get anything out of the worship. Well, let me ask you something, because it's not up to him to bless you. Our job of worship is where humanity touches deity so it's uh not god it's not god's job to bless you it's your job to bless god get cracking god's sitting there going, you better get busy blessing me or i'm sending you to hell where we get to touch god now sometimes we do it with lifting up of hands in fact the bible says lifting up holy hands without wrath without doubt The Bible says we clap our hands, all you people. There's all different forms of worship. But let me give you one. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. This is not in your notes, so if you would just write this in. Hebrews 13 and verse 15. I love this because this is one we can all do right now. You say, oh man, do we all get a guitar? No, we get to have, you've already got an instrument. You get an instrument, you've already got it, but you're getting ready to use it. I'm getting ready to help you plug it in. All right, here we go. Ready? Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, speaking of God, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Do what? Continually? Boy, there's times I don't feel like praising God. That's why it's called the sacrifice of praise. See, praise and worship is not based upon your feelings. It's based upon the reality of who God is. Open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, remember our three rules for properly understanding the Bible. They are context, context, and 
well, context. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 7, I read, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good uh, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us not go to let us go to him outside the camp and to bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we see the city that is coming. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Yeah, when you put it into context, it's offering a sacrifice of praise in light of the gospel. Christ being basically shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins outside of the city gate. Let us go to him and let us offer a sacrifice of praise. Everything is in light of grace, faith, mercy, the shed blood of Christ, the gospel. This guy, even when he reads a verse that has the gospel in it, he's completely oblivious to it. Or he, t- worse, he takes it and turns it into a law, something you have to do. Jesus gave his all for you and it gave his great, so what are you going to give to him? You say, look, I'm having a really bad day today. But he's still an awesome God. So it's not based upon whether you had a bad day. It's based upon the fact that he's an awesome God. And you know what? The Father's seeking such to worship him. But listen to this again. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continue to offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So where's the instrument at? Oh, you got it already. It's in the verse. It's through him. Right here. The fruit of our lips. Let me ask you something. How many today you've maybe said something you wish you could take back already? Your tongue, your lips, across your lips has already come things that you wish. Oh, I wish I would have said that. Oh, why did I do that? Have you already, how many of you have already done that? Don't raise your hand, but you know who I'm talking about. You've already had that moment with the child. They spilt the milk and put it on your dress or poured it on your pants. And it's now sitting and you get home. The house is going to smell like rotten milk. You know what I'm talking about. You know, I think sometimes the, the devil uses our kids more than anybody else in the world. But I'm, you know what I'm talking about. We used to have small kids. And then you remember, you ever get ready for kids, uh, for, for church and your kid has a blowout? How many know what a blowout is? I'm not talking about tires. I'm talking about the child has a blowout. You're on your way out the door and all of a sudden, kaboom! And you're like, oh, you got to be thinking about, wait a minute, because across your lips, what happens, what comes there? But it says right here that we are to continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. So guess what's your instrument? Actually, the verse says, through him. Through him, 
we are to offer the sacrifice of praise through Jesus. Hmm. It's your lips. So we're going to do something. In a minute, I'm going to count to three. And we're all together because as far as I know in our congregation, we have no one that is mute. And if you are mute, please let us know that. Because we would make sure that, you know, we don't ask you to be in the choir. But I mean, just I don't know of any mutes that are here today. All of you here can sing. All of you here can speak. You may not want to hear what you sound like, but all of you can speak. Today, every one of you have said something somewhere to somebody. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take literally Hebrews 13, 15, and we're going to right now have a worship session because we're going to offer continually the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, because all of you can talk. And it says here, here's what happens. We offer up the fruit of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We sang a while ago, it is you, it is you. And we sang that, but did we really mean it's you? Our praises are for only you. We sang that a while ago. But if I was to ask you to count of three, to let something come across your lips that is purposefully a praise to God. You say, well, I don't feel like it. Well, that's why it's called the sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips. Fruit is always the expression of what's inside. So I'm giving you a chance because I'm going to count to one now. Have you already thought about something you can bless God for? You, you said, well, how about your sight? What about the ability to walk? What about your lungs are working right now? What about the ability that you could know Him as your Savior? Two. Are you thinking about something right now that's going to roll off your lips? And together we're going to do it on the count of three. But on three, are you going to right now begin to say, this is something I'm going to give to God, the sacrifice of praise? Three, let's do it. Father, I thank you right now. I bless you. I bless you, Lord. Come on, across your lips. Praise to God. I praise you, O Lord. I glorify you. I thank you, God. The fruit of my lips. Lord, it doesn't make a difference about me at this moment. Lord, I give to you the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of my lips. I bless your name. I bless you. Apparently, this sacrifice of praise supersedes the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Because, I mean, you got to bless God and make him happy or else. So this is the way you do it. You better you better be, you know, that that's the way this has been taught here. It's your sacrifice, your obedience. It's all up to you if you want to get in. Whew. Oh God, thank you God that today I can know you. You gave your only son for me. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I bless you. I thank you you i give you glory i let my lips declare you are a great god you are an awesome god there's none other beside you awesome god awesome god awesome god lord i thank you today that you have saved me through the giving of your son jesus how? What did Jesus do for you to save you? You've just said we've got to obey and, you know, all this other law stuff. I mean, where does Jesus' death on the cross play into this at all? If it's all up to me and my obedience and my sacrifice of praise and 
my going from good to great and you you know where does the cross fit into this theology again bless you my lips say thank you isn't it amazing when you just say thank you have you ever Got somebody, you know, you knew there was a birthday party coming up or maybe it was a birthday party that one of your kids had to go to and you went out and you looked all over and you found this gift, you got it wrapped, you put the card together, you went to the party and all of a sudden the little kid just kind of took it and just throws it over and never opens it and act like they didn't care what it was. You ever had that happen? Or maybe it's an adult that you did that for. You went in, you picked this out and you really thought it through and you really got something you thought they'd really like and then you had it wrapped and you put the car and then they just act like they didn't care and they just laid it aside and never opened it. 2,000 years ago, there was a Savior who came and wrapped himself in flesh and he dwelt among us. His name was Jesus Christ. Okay, we're getting close to the gospel here. Will we actually hear it? Again, my big question is, how does the gospel play into this theology? He just preached raw, naked law obedience. Heaven's best came to earth. And when I ask you a question, what are you doing with what he gave you? Are you just kind of throwing it around? Well, yeah, one of these days maybe I'll serve. Okay, he's just turned the gospel into law. He doesn't even get the gospel nugget sound at this point. No, heaven's best came to visit earth. The least we can do is say, Father, thank you. For what? Thank you for visiting. Come back again soon. We'll keep the light on for you. Every week I'm going to try to give you one of these unexpected findings. In the letter G, we go to God for greatness, the definition of greatness. Let me give you something I found out about as I've studied for this message. One of the unexpected findings, number one, is God's definition of great turns my life upside down. See, when God really does something in my life, many times what he does, he turns it all upside down because no longer can I trust in myself and fix it with my things or get my thoughts or, or my efforts or my finances. God sometimes gets you in a place that all of a sudden life is just turned upside down and the only thing you can trust is turn to Him and say, Father, I'm sorry. I've been trying to fix this myself, but I turn to you because true greatness is only defined by you. Uh, by the way, this is not the biblical gospel. This is flat out a false gospel. Sin, repentance of sins, forgiveness of sins. I mean, Jesus came to visit. The, the least we could do is say thank you. you know, I'm so sorry. I've been doing this on my own. <laughs> what was I thinking? God, now you can help me get my life straight. Thanks. This is not the biblical gospel. This is not Christianity. This is a completely other religion, by the way. You may not have the corner office right now. You may be upside down or you may be facing foreclosure or you may be facing a job loss right now. But can I tell you this? Do not let anything else define to you what greatness is. But go to God and ask him, Lord, 
Am I truly being obedient to you? Am I serving? God, am I serving the way I should? And then last, am I being a worshiper? Somewhere in the process of this message, I want to be able to take us into a journey that turns us from just being good Christians to great Christians. Well, there you had it. That's the whole sermon. Um, Absolutely no gospel, 100% law. This is not Christianity, completely different. This is not Christianity. I don't care if he was quoting from a Bible or if he talked about Jesus. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's pure law. That's the kind of preaching that will absolutely send you to hell. Why? Well, because it's hypocrisy. The guy's not obedient. You think for a second he really truly is just doing it. You know, he's just being obedient to God, and he worships the way he should because, by the way, God doesn't grade on the curve when it comes to the law. In fact, the law is the ministry of death. Look it up. Uh, the law, by the way, condemns us. The law cannot save us. For Galatians says if a law had been given by which we can be saved, that Christ died for no reason. This guy is preaching pure unadulterated law but you, all you got to do to fix this is just apply the law apply the law lawfully what's the purpose of the law to show you were a wretched sinner so we can just ask the question is pastor dunesbury here perfectly obedient nope god doesn't grade the law on the curve you've got to obey it you if you're going to keep if you're going to be saved by it you got to pull it off completely perfectly does he keep it perfectly? Not even close. Are are the intentions of his heart always pure as the wind-driven snow? Not even close. Uh, if you applied these three things to your life, would would you then stand justified before God? Only if you could keep it perfectly. So these three points, they just turn around to, and what do they do? They condemn you. But let me give you the good news. You know you're not obedient. You know your life is not only marked with mediocrity, like that's the biggest problem that you have, but it's it's marked with outright rebellion and sin against God. The things you don't want to do, you do those things. The things you know you shouldn't do, you do those things. The things you do want to do, you don't do those things. Not even close. And even when you do the things you know you should do, your motives aren't even pure at all. In fact, you need to be saved from your good works as much as you need to be saved from your bad And that's what the cross is all about. Because the cross, what we learn from that is that Jesus Christ died for all of your sins as well as your faulty good works. And he calls you to repentance and forgiveness. The cross isn't about you looking to God and going, oh, I'm so glad you visited. The least I could do is say thank you. No, Jesus wasn't visiting. He came to earth on a mission to die in your place on the cross and to forgive you of all of your sins, to grant you a full and complete pardon. We just read it in Isaiah 55. He forgot to read that part, but I didn't. So the good news is that Christ died for your sins. Which ones? All of them. Every transgression, every infraction of God's law, every false motive, every sin of omission, commission, uh, transmission, it doesn't matter. All of those sins, Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and he 
calls you to repent of your unbelief and your sinfulness and to trust in him and his perfect righteousness and his mercy and grace and shed blood for you. And believe it or not, that is the thing that justifies us as well as sanctifies us. We're sanctified through the gospel. God sets us apart and begins to mold us into his image and curb our appetite for sin. Will it be perfect this side of the resurrection? Not even close. But there is a day coming when you will no longer sin. And it's on the last day. When It begins on the last day when you are resurrected into a brand new body that will not decay and you will be with Christ forever. That's our great hope. And all of that completely lost on a pastor who really doesn't preach God's word and thought it'd be more relevant to preach about a business book. Good to great, all law, no gospel. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And it's important because once we get to 1,000 listeners, we're still not quite there yet, um, then that'll guarantee that at least we can pay our bills every month. Mucho importante. And i got to let you know, as we get closer to the month of October, we're going to have to up the number of uh, subscribers we need because of the fact that, well, the, things have gotten a little bit more expensive around here as Pirate Christian Radio has grown and our audience has grown. So I want to let you know that. Anyway, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.